Welcome to the Sermon Audio Podcast of Hill Country Bible Church, Georgetown. The podcast bringing you biblical messages that encourage you to put Christ at the center of everyday life. We're here to help you engage in the local church and to invite you into a life that matters through Jesus. If you have any questions about your next step, visit us online at hillcountry.life. And now for today's message. Well, good morning. You guys enjoying spring break? Uh, okay, how many of you parents are waiting for school to come back? You can't wait to get the kids out of the house. Go ahead, the kids are back in the children's business. It's safe. All right, good. A little bit lighter crowd today. Some people are still enjoying spring break. Want to welcome you if you're here. Welcome you if you're watching online as well. So I remember the situation vividly. I was in the fourth grade, and my friends and I, we faced a little dilemma. You see, we used to enjoy a carefree bike ride home from school each and every day. Like, no worries, no hassles. But rumor had it, things were about to change. According to some of my friends who got stopped the day before, it was going to cost us a price to get home on our regular bike route each and every day. You see, there was this guy whose very name evoked fear amongst my friends. He was the neighborhood bully, much bigger, much older than we were. And I just remember his last name was Samansky, okay? Apparently, big bullies just need a last name. That's it. You know, Samansky. Sounds like monster, doesn't it? And, and Samansky, man, he lived up to his name. He would often chase down younger elementary kids, knock them off their bikes, you know, take their stuff, and, and then charge a toll to get by each and every day. And like any good neighborhood bully, he threatened to beat the living daylights out of you if you squealed, right? If you went home and told your parents. Well, Sure enough, the next day, my buddies and I were riding home from school, and we're thinking, no, there's, there's nothing going on here. And then suddenly, from out behind the bushes, come all these bicycles. It was Samonsky and his gang. And they tracked us down, knocked us off our bikes, you know, did typical bullying stuff. No one was hurt, just a little scare, and a reminder that the next day, we better be prepared to pay a toll. Now, your average fourth grader probably would have been scared out of his wits, I mean, we were just little wimpy elementary kids. These guys were much bigger, much older than we were. But you see, I knew something Samonsky didn't. Or maybe I should say someone. His name was Bruce. And not Bruce Almighty, if you've seen the movie. Just, although it seemed that way. Just, just Bruce. And bullies, they're, they're known for being bigger and stronger. Not usually known for being smarter. And, and while my friends who were all the oldest siblings in their families, they were great candidates to pick on, great candidates to charge a toll from. I was not. You see, I was the youngest of three older brothers. And one of my brothers, Bruce, was six years my senior, four years Samonsky's senior. And I got to tell you, I took great delight in looking Samonsky in the eye and saying, I promise I will not tell my parents. <laughs> I will not tell my parents. I didn't have to. They had messed with the wrong little kid. And you can probably guess how the story ends, right? The next day, my brother Bruce and one of his friends paid a visit to Samonsky and his whole gang. And Bruce never laid a finger on him, but from what I heard, there wasn't a dry pair of pants amongst those kids <laughs> when my brother finished his little lecture. <laughs> and, and as for my, my friends and I, I mean, our fears melted away overnight. From that day on, we had like a new attitude. 
Uh, in fact, I, I couldn't wait to ride home from school each and every day, past Samansky's house, just kind of wave at him. Hey, Samansky, how's it going? Right? <laughs> we had this new attitude. And if I had to put that attitude into words, it would go something like this. If Bruce is for us, who can be against us? Right? If Bruce is for us, who can be against us? We were on top of the world. Like no power, we were convinced. Nothing could stand against us. Well, this morning, we're wrapping up this series called The Fight. And over the last few weeks, we've been walking through Paul's formula for overcoming sin found in Romans 6 and Romans 7. And today, we're going to jump ahead to the end of Romans 8, where Paul gives us the best news of all. He says this, in this fight against sin, we win. <laughs> we win. In Romans 8.31, Paul poses the question, if God is for us, who can be against us? If God is for us, who can be against us? The simple answer is, if God is for us, nothing and nobody can stand against us. And I got to tell you, people, what we're going to look at today is one of the most exciting passages in this entire book. And if you can wrap your head around the truths of Romans 8, then you will cruise through life with a newfound security and confidence that you never dreamed possible. Like a security and confidence that comes from knowing that God is for you. You see, I think most Christians have barely scratched the surface in their understanding of God's grace. What God wants to do in their life because of grace. And in this section of Scripture, Paul raises five rhetorical questions. And these five questions, I believe, give us the clearest understanding in the Bible of what it means when we say God is for us. So let's dive in here. We're going to begin in Romans 8.31. We're going to read this entire passage together. What then shall we say in response to this? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but also gave him up for us all. How will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who is he that condemns? Christ Jesus, who died more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble, or hardship, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. People, in this passage, there are five specific questions that point us to five important ways to live by grace. And you could summarize grace in a single sentence. God is for us. God's for us. Now, I challenge you to meditate on that truth this week. 
man, it'll revolutionize your life. And based on the fact that God is for us, let's walk through these five questions Paul poses here. First question is found in verse 31. Who can be against us? Who can be against us? What then shall we say in response to this? If God is for us, now in the Greek there, that's a first-class conditional statement. It's better translated since God is for us. Since God is for us, who can be against us? The first truth is this. Grace means I can always count on God's power. If God is for me, what power can stand against me? One plus God always equals a majority. And so Christians should never be discouraged when they recognize that God is on their side. I mean, my friends and I enjoyed tremendous confidence around Samansky, not because of our own power, but because of a greater power. You ever had that kind of confidence before? Remember as a kid when you would play kickball or football and you would divide up to pick teams, right? Who did you always want to get on your side? You wanted the biggest kid, the most athletic kid, right? You thought, man, if we can get that guy on our team, we'll be unstoppable. And verse 31 is similar to that. Like, if God is lined up on our side of the line of scrimmage, who cares who's on the other side? Like, the power of God is so overwhelming that no opposition can stand against it. 1 John 4, 4 says it well. You, dear children, are from God and have overcome them because the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. So what in your life is overwhelming you right now? Financial problems, physical problems, work problems, relationship problems, marriage problems. The Bible says the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. Grace means I can always count on God's power. So nothing should overwhelm you people when you put it in God's hands. Now, will you still have troubles, still have problems, still have trials, still have enemies? Absolutely. I mean, we got to battle our own flesh and, and the world and the devil. They're all working against us. And like Samansky, those things try to intimidate us and overwhelm us. But as a Christian, you should not be intimidated because God is sovereign and God is all-powerful. And he's also promised that nothing, hear me on this, nothing can come into your life without his permission. He won't allow people or circumstances or the enemy to mess up and destroy your life. Grace means I can always count on God's power. Second question, who will provide for us? Look at verse 32. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Folks, if God loved me enough to send his son Jesus to this world to die for me, he loves me enough to take care of all the other things in life. And I know so many Christians who feel like, well, I don't want to come to God with every little financial need, every little health need, every problem I have. I'm just going to bring God the, the big stuff. This verse says the exact opposite. God already solved your biggest problem when he sent Jesus to die on the cross for you. And everything else, everything else, people, is so minor by comparison. So grace means I can always count on God's provision. I mean, think about it. God would not go through all the trouble 
of sending his son Jesus to this earth and then to the cross to die for your sins and then adopt you into the family and treat you then like he doesn't care about you. Now, once you receive Jesus, when you believe in Jesus, you become family. You know what that means? You get to enjoy all the blessings, all the benefits of being family. Just like I got to enjoy the benefit of being related to my brother Bruce, like we get to enjoy the benefits of knowing that our Father, our Father is the Almighty Creator God, and He is a good, good Father. Listen to Matthew 7. Which of you, if his son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? See, God promises to provide for all your needs in life. Philippians 4.19 says, and my God will meet, say it with me, all, say it again, all your needs according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus. Think about this. God's resources, limitless, and he wants to help you. He's on your side. That's a fantastic truth. Grace means I can always count on God's provision. He'll always take care of me. Let's move on to the third question. Who can accuse us? Verse 33. Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? You know, many people may want to accuse you or criticize you for being a Christian, but there is one who is the chief accuser. Take a look at Revelation 12.10. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now have come the salvation, the power, and and the kingdom of our God, and the authority of Christ. For the accuser of our brothers, who accuses them before our God day by day, has been hurled down. He's talking about Satan here. And most Christians, like, we have no idea what's going on up in heaven, that Satan is continually accusing us before God. But Paul says, you don't need to sweat those accusations. Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It's a rhetorical question. Nobody can. It is God who justifies. Folks, grace means I can always count on God's protection in life. I want you for a second to imagine a courtroom scene. And God is the judge, and Satan is the prosecuting attorney. And he's bringing all this evidence up against you, saying, well, look at that person. I can't believe they claim to be a Christian. How can you love that person and promise to meet all their needs when they're acting that way? Like Satan sees all the wrong you do, all of your sin, and he brings it before God to accuse you. So God's the judge. Satan's the prosecuting attorney. But the Bible also says we have a defense attorney. And who is this attorney for the defense? (laughs) I think you know. Look at 1 John 2, 1 to 2. I love this. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defense. Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. Jesus Christ is our defense attorney. That's a fantastic truth. 
So when Satan comes to accuse you, Jesus is pleading your case. I got to tell you, the cards are stacked against the devil. I mean, not only do we have a perfect defense attorney, and God's on our side as well, and he's the judge, but in addition to that, the pardon, the penalty for your sins already paid in full. So Satan doesn't have a case against you, and neither would anyone else who would dare to bring an accusation against you. It's interesting here, the term accuse, bring a charge, it's enkaleo in the Greek. It's actually a legal term that means to impeach. Paul says, we are unimpeachable. So as a Christian, you should ignore the accusations of the enemy because the penalty has already been paid for in full. Now, Satan may still try, he will still try to accuse you personally. He'll try to make you feel guilty for sins in the past. In fact, if a thought pops into your head like, man, I can't believe the kind of past I've had, how lousy I've been. I can't even believe that God would possibly forgive me for my past. You can rest assured that's the enemy distracting you, accusing you. It's how he works, challenging the clear truths of God's word. I mean, he comes at you with lines like, well, maybe you're not really forgiven. Maybe you're not really a true believer. Well, rest assured, God isn't buying those lies. We might fall for them, but God doesn't. Because grace means I can always count on God's protection. Fourth question. Who will condemn us? This is verse 34. Who is he that condemns? Jesus Christ, who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. So more than just accusations, who's going to sentence us now that we're believers? Now, the story is told of two judges, Tyler and Katz, who were each arrested on speeding charges. And when they arrived at the courtroom on the appointed day, no one was there to try their case. And so rather than just sitting around and waiting, they decided they would try each other's cases. And so Katz, he motioned Tyler up to the stand and said, how do you plead, sir? Tyler says, guilty. Katz says, okay, I sentence you to a $50 fine and a warning from the court. And Katz steps down, the two judges shake hands. Tyler steps up, motions Katz forward, says, how do you plead, sir? Katz says, guilty. And then Tyler, he paused for a moment and he said, you know, these reckless driving cases are becoming all too common as of late. I mean, this is the second such case in the last 10 minutes. We got to do something about it. I, I sentence you to a $200 fine and 10 days in jail. <laughs> Ouch. Okay. My point is this. You can't always count on grace from people, can you? Unfortunately, <laughs> the Lord is our judge. And grace means I can always, always, always count on God's pardon. Folks, Christians aren't perfect. We say it all the time around here. We are imperfect people doing life with the perfect God. We're not perfect, but we are forgiven. And Paul says, who will condemn you? <laughs> not Jesus, right? He's busy defending you. He loves you. He died for you. In fact, he has already justified you. Romans 8.1. Therefore, there is now, say it with me, how much? No condemnation. Say it again. No condemnation. Zero, zilch, nada. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Doesn't say for those who promise to be good, there's no condemnation. 
for those who go to church. No, no conditions here. It's on the basis of what Jesus has already done for you. Look at 1 Peter 3.18. For Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. Jesus was the righteous one dying for the unrighteous. See, the reason I'm not condemned is because Jesus took every single one of my sins, past, present, and future, with him to that cross 2,000 years ago. Christ was condemned for us so that you and I can live a life free from condemnation. And what's required of me? Well, John 3.18 says it best. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. How simple is that? Whoever believes in him is not condemned. Bible says we're simply called to believe, to trust, to have faith in Jesus. Folks, salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone. All right, back to verse 34. Who is he that condemns? Jesus Christ, who died, and more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. You might underline that. Did you know that Jesus is praying for you right now? As you stumble through life, Jesus is praying for you. That's super encouraging. So, grace means I can always count on God for his power, his provision, his protection, and his pardon. And finally, the fifth question is found in verse 35. Who can separate us? This is what Paul says. Who shall separate us? from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? You can pause there. The answer to these rhetorical questions is a resounding no, no, no way. See, grace means I can always count on God's presence. He's always with me. He'll never leave me. And I want you to notice carefully the things that Paul mentions here. He talks about trouble, hardship, persecution. You know, Jesus said in John 16, this is a promise, by the way, to all of you, in this world, you will have what? <laughs> trouble. Yeah. Isn't that great? What a wonderful promise. Uh-huh. In this world, you will have trouble. But hear me on this. It cannot separate you from the love of God. Tough times can't sever your relationship with him. Tough times are also not an indication that God has somehow stopped loving you. Sometimes we have this tendency in our mind to believe that when things aren't going our way, when we face trials or hardships or troubles in life, that, that maybe God's abandoned us or maybe we've somehow separated ourselves from him. Not at all. Paul goes on to prove that in verse 35. Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness, or danger, or sword. As it is written, for your sake, we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. Paul goes into a little aside there. Paul is talking about his own personal experience now. In case the reader was tempted to say, but, but, but Paul, you don't know the kind of pain I've been through. You don't know the kind of hardship I've endured. Yeah, yeah, he did. Did you know that Paul spent roughly one quarter of his missionary career in prisons? I mean, he faced death time and time and time again. 
And yet from those dank and dark imprisonments, you know what he wrote? (laughs) Rejoice in the Lord always. He knew God hadn't left him. In fact, he knew that all the situation around him, all the circumstances, all that bad stuff, God was working for good in the end. He believed that with all of his heart. So Paul, he's working through this exhaustive list here to prove to you, to prove to me that absolutely nothing can separate you from God's presence. He continues, no, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Well, I love that. Do you realize you are a conqueror? We are conquerors. We are victors. Some of you know the lyrics to that old hymn, Victory in Jesus. Like he sought me and he bought me with his redeeming blood. Folks, God paid a huge price so that you can be a victorious conqueror. God is for you. Do you believe that? Like really in your heart, do you believe that? I think far too many Christians are closer to believing the child who misunderstood the lyrics to that hymn, Victory in Jesus. And one day at church, his parents noticed this little guy singing aloud, he socked me and boxed me with his redeeming glove. No, 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 no. Not at all. God is for you. He's not against you. You are a conqueror. Well, Paul's not done yet. (laughs) Not at all. He's building to a great crescendo here as he finishes his argument for our eternal security. It gets wonderful. It gets awesome. This is the best. Here we go. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, nothing associated with death, nothing associated with life, neither angels nor demons, so no created being other than humanity, neither the present nor the future, things that might happen today or anything that might happen between today and all of eternity. Nor any powers, neither height, things in heaven, nor depth, things in hell, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Wow. What a great chapter Romans 8 is. Paul begins with no condemnation, and he ends with no separation. Once you're a Christian, nothing, nothing can separate you from the love of God. Can you lose your salvation? Well, let me ask you this. Has Paul left anything out of this equation? I mean, he's covered time, space, eternity. He's covered your actions and the actions of every other being in this universe. So if doubts creep in, that might cause you to question, could could, could I somehow blow it one day and lose my salvation? Ask yourself this, when would that happen? Can't be in the present, can't be in the future. And the Bible says that nothing in all creation, which last time I checked includes you, by the way, you're part of God's creation. Nothing in all creation can separate you from him. He loves you on your good days. He loves you on your bad days. He loves you when you're faithful. He loves you when you're not faithful. Now, now that you're his child, nothing can separate you from the family. You know, it's kind of like my children. Once they're born, they may go out. My kids could go out. My boys could go out. They could go and live a lifestyle that I totally disapprove of. 
They could do things with their life that disappoint me. Our fellowship, our relationship could be strained. My children will always be my children. Right? They could even go off like Luke Skywalker shouting at Darth Vader, you're not my father. Yeah, he is, Luke. That's Anakin Skywalker. Deal with it, okay? See, I might disown God. I could do that. One day, I might disown God, but he will never, ever disown me. That's his promise. Now, the Bible says we might suffer a loss of fellowship with God. We might suffer a loss of rewards in heaven. But once you're adopted into the family, you're family forever. The Lord promised in Hebrews 13, 5, never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. You are eternally secure. What a comfort to know that you might, you might lose everything else in life, but you can never lose your relationship with God. So because of God's grace, there's no opposition too great for God's power. No situation beyond God's provision. No accusation for which I lack God's protection. No condemnation that won't be met by God's pardon and no separation from his presence. Folks, if you believe these truths, you should be able to ride through life with confidence, with an attitude that says, hey, if God is for me, who can be against me? If God is for me, who can be against me? Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, how I love Romans 8. And after Romans 6 and 7 and the the muck and mire of our sin and being separated from you and totally depraved and struggling with our sin nature and the law tearing us down and all that stuff and all the battle to overcome sin in Romans 6 and 7, we recognize that the answer is found in you, in your spirit in Romans 8 and what you have done for us. How we thank you for that. God, we thank you that grace means that we can count on your power. When we are powerless, when we don't have the strength, we can turn to you and you will show up for us in mighty ways. God, thank you for your promise that as we seek you and your kingdom first, all the other things will be provided for us. We can count on your provision. Thank you, Lord, that we can count on your protection as we go through life recognizing you are sovereign. You're not going to allow anything to come into our life that you won't give us the strength to handle. And God, how we thank you that no matter how much we mess up in life and we stumble and we sin, your pardon is perfect. You've paid for 100% of those sins on the cross. And finally, God, we thank you for your presence that no matter what, you will never leave us, you will never forsake us. God, I pray that these truths would not just be head knowledge, but they would be truths that we live in every moment of every day. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Folks, go out today and live with that truth that God is for you. Have a great week.